Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I will get to this Acts chapter 2 at some point in time. At some point in time. <laughs> if you guys want to, throw that graphic for the series up on the, on the screen. Because today I'm going to be, it's in, it's in Holy Ricks, it's in the program. I promise, or it was. If it's not, I don't care. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, we started a series on signs of a healthy church. And I just, I, I told you guys, I felt like, oh, there it is, whoop, whoop. Um, I told you guys that I really just felt like God was telling me to slow down and to switch from being preachy to being pastory. I know that the word would be pastoral, but I like pastory better, so. Um, but to just take some time and just slow down and just talk about church. You know, what is church? What is it to be a healthy church? And so, you know, he even had me switch to the NIV translation to just make sure that everything was easy and slow and that we weren't in a hurry. We weren't just trying to preach, you know, a fiery, get them riled up message, but we were really trying to lean into God's word and figure out what he wanted for us as a church and as a body. And so we defined signs. We defined healthy and we defined church. We didn't define of and a, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that assumption. Give me a little bit of liberty um, to, to take some presuppositions there. But, you know, we talked about what does a sign do? It communicates a message of something that's not immediately perceivable. You know, five miles to Cleveland, you know, a sign communicates something that you couldn't understand or perceive otherwise. And then we talked about church and we defined church as being you know, a diverse yet unified assembly of believers that are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then we just talked about healthy. And we, uh, I made the observation, and maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, that the church goes through these epochs or cycles, kind of like in the book of Judges. They sin, they go into bondage, God brings a judge, delivers them, yay, let's celebrate and worship God for like two days, and then let's go right back to sin. And the church does that throughout the history of the church. They go through lulls, ruts, rots, and then they have a revival and an awakening. And it just then the course starts over again. You know, you think about the Great Awakening with, you know, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley. And you think about how everyone exploded and it was like anywhere you went, people were worshiping and praising God and everybody went to church and it didn't matter because everybody was after God. And then it was literally less than 100 years later and they were right back to hardly knowing God at all. And then you have, you know, people like Charles Finney come on the scene and then there's another big awakening and revival and everybody, you know, factories are closed down because people are worshiping God. And, and it's just... Then, you know, less than 100 years later, same thing. And then you have like the businessman's revival. And then you have people like, you know, Branham and Oral Roberts and other people step up on the scene. And then you have this great explosion of revival. And then it tapers off. And then you have where we're at today. I forgot the Jesus revolution, the hopelessness of the 60s, and then the Jesus revolution or the Jesus people movement and that explosion of revival. And it's not even been 50 years. And look where we're at as a church. So the church is healthy, then it's sick. Then it's healthy, and then it's sick. And that's kind of how we live our Christian life as individuals. We go on, then we get sick, and we pray, God will heal us. Then we get healed, and then we get back sick again. And I told you that I believe in personal life, there's an area of divine health where you can live above the reach of sickness. I'm not there, but I believe it to be possible because nothing is impossible with God. So I believe that it's possible I just don't know how to get there, and I'm not there personally. But I believe the same is true of church. I believe the church could not just be healed in a revival and awakening, but I believe the church could exist in a perpetual state of awakening and revival. And that's what I would love to see. I would love to see a church living in divine health, not just healthy, then sick, healthy, then sick, healthy, then sick. 
And so I was like gung-ho on this series, like, okay, yes, we're going. And then last week I had my message polished and prepared and I was ready. And about 30 seconds before I walked up here, God was like, that's cute. (laughs) I heard that expression recently and so now it's stuck in my mind and I knew I was going to use that. That's cute. You're so cute, CA, but you're not doing that. I knew that it was going to come out. Sorry, that herd of turtles. Um, Anyway, about 30 seconds before I walked up here, God said, no, 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 you're not preaching that. And it's like, well, great. What am I preaching? I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> well, I got to preach in 30 seconds, so I'm not good at math, but a minute kind of puts me past the time. <laughs> and so I literally, I stood up here. Some of you remember, but I stood up here and I just threw my hands up to faith and was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And God began to lead me into a message on holiness and the fear of God. And I began to realize after I preached the message and we talked about the reverence of God and the holiness of God and where's the fear of the Lord at in church and why is church so predictable and why is it boring and how can people possibly fall asleep in church if we're talking about experiencing and encountering the God of the universe and how, how have we got to this point where church sucks a lot of times? And it does, and you know it just as well as I do. Listen, I love preaching, but there have been times I've went to church and I've preached and I've left and I've worshipped and I leave and I'm like, man, that sucked. <laughs> like, I, I just, I want more. I want more. And I people tell me all the time, like I've had this problem ever since I've become a Christian, where I'm like, I want more of God. And then people will come off with this, well, did you know that the desire for intimacy with God is intimacy with God? And I'm like, yeah, that sucks, because the Bible also says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And my hope is deferred, and I, my heart is sick, and I want more of God. I want to experience Him right now. Give me a little bit of what I see in this. Just a little bit. Like, where's my burning bush? Where's my theophoric vi- or theophany? Where's my manifestation of God's presence by the river Chabar? And where's the heavens parting? And I see the clouds ripped in half and God just tearing through and saying, hey, I'm about to invade the scene. Like, I want some of that. <laughs> and it's not just Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Stephen, getting ready to be stoned, saw the heavens torn apart and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Like, that's mine. Like, I want some of that. Heck, at this point, I'll t- give me some of the book of Revelation. Let me see some of the cool stuff happening in that. Like, <laughs> people are like, wait a second. We're, we're, we were tracking with you up to that point. Like, you just lost us. Like, I just, I want to see some awesome. And I, I had this whole thing, like, and just this moment. And I began to realize this past week after preaching that message that God began to show me that that message wasn't an interruption in the series, Signs of a Healthy Church, but rather it was the very foundation for the series. Because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm like, good Lord, how did I miss the fear of the Lord when I'm mapping out this series and I'm planning on talking about what a healthy church is? How did I miss the fear of the Lord? And I began to realize that what God was showing me was that He was... Some of you, I might mess with your theology a little bit, but God was testing me. God was testing me in that moment, and I truly believe that He withheld me thinking about the fear of the Lord so that I would get ready to go up and He would hold out what I was supposed to do and then say, do you fear me enough to be obedient even when you don't know what you're being obedient to? And thank God I said yes this time because let me tell you, there's been times where I've been like, ah! No, I don't know, Lord. Listen, I love to share the gospel, but there's been times in Walmart where I'm like, I need to share the gospel with them, but Lord, they barely got clothes on. I don't want to talk to them. (laughs) Like, "Ah!" (laughs) they look like Chewbacca. I don't (laughs) know. Anyway, so I began to realize that God was laying the foundation for the whole series. Look, the the church is equated with being the household of faith or the house of God. And so I began to realize today, this morning, 
as I was talking to faith that God was literally going to build a metaphorical house, talking about signs of a healthy church. And it's kind of cool because she put a little house in there when she designed this graphic, and that was unplanned, unexpected. You know, it was just one of those things that God's like, ha this is going to be cute later. <laughs> but the house has to be built on the appropriate foundation. Everybody knows when you're talking about construction, if the foundation is shot, it doesn't matter. Like, I was looking at a house one time when we were searching for just random property. This has been a few years ago. But we were searching for property and houses to buy. And I found this house. And, I mean, this was a three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half million-dollar home. And I'm looking at it, and it's being sold for $80,000. And I'm like, I'm like, what in the world? But I'm talking this house has its own bowling alley. It has its own little theater room with the cool recliners, the leather ones, and the big screen. Like, it, it is Mac Daddy house. I don't even know if that's a good expression to use. But, I mean, it is an awesome, awesome house. Got the cool driveway, you know, asphalted with the fountain in the middle. And, it, and so you can just make a circle. You don't even, your car don't even need reverse at this point, you know, just pulling. Right, like, it is an amazing house. It's like a four-car garage. But it was being sold for $80,000. And I was like, I'm going to get me a house. And then I began to read, and the house was condemned. Because it was built too close to the bluff, and the seismic shifting of the ground had put a crack in the foundation. And at any moment in time, and this was in the description, at any moment in time, the house could just go over the bluff. And... I'm like, well, I'm not wasting $80,000 of my money. I don't want half a house, you know. <laughs> the foundation is everything. Paul even goes so far to say, other foundation can no man lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And when you talk about Jesus Christ, you're talking about the fear of the Lord. Look, I know we like to talk about merciful Jesus, meek and mild, but no, Jesus Christ, when he comes back in the fullness of the wrath of the Lamb, they're going to hide and pray that mountains fall on them and save them from the wrath of the Lamb. Look, Jesus Christ is not just meek and mild and merciful and kind. He is the King of kings. So when you talk about Jesus, you need to realize you're talking about the fear of the Lord. He is the foundation. So that brings us up to where we're at now. This is part number three of the series. And I had it planned out, remember? And last night I come over here and I, I'm supposed to be kind of like praying through the sermon, the message, and none of it. I just threw the whole thing out because, Okay, I gotta I gotta back up and I gotta share something. Are we good? Are you guys good? Is this is this okay? Okay, I got well good because I don't know what else I would do if you said no. <laughs> but if we back up, we've been here going on six months. It doesn't seem like that long of a time. Maybe to you it feels like an eternity. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like that long. It seems like the blink of an eye, and we we've been here. It feels like we moved in like last week. We've been here since the end of November. And, you know, we've been here December, January, February, March, April, May, and we're into May. I literally almost skipped February, and I thought, man, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> I tell people all the time, look, out, when you get outside the Bible, my intelligence drops drastically. I'd, if I skipped February, you guys would, that would take on a whole new meaning. <laughs> Sorry. Rabbit, rabbit. Um <laughs> God, help me. <laughs> help me through this. So, yeah, definitely squirrel. Definitely squirrel. Um, <laughs> I said, help me, Lord. <laughs> Listen, so we, we've been here in that time, and I've had a lot of people ask me the same question. I've had a lot of people ask me the same question. What's your vision? What's your vision? What's your vision for the ministry? Um, and the mans are here from CTN. Uh, we did a commercial, and she asked me, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I like family discipleship. Let's throw that out there, but I don't have the vision. I had Cleveland Net come here and do a prayer thing, and they asked me, what's the vision? I don't know. Still waiting on that. We did the vision cast in January, and he said, hey, guys, I don't know what the vision is, but I know God's got something to do with it, so we're going to seek God. And I, I've just I've had pastors take me out to lunch. You know, Mark Williams from North Cleveland, he asked me what the vision was. It's like, I don't know. I haven't got it. And when I say that, like, I don't want 
and I, I've talked to you guys about this before, I believe, I don't want to just share a formula or a strategy. You know, I don't want to go love God, love people at XYZ Church. I don't want to say we're for Cleveland. Like, and, and the churches that do that, I'm not beating up on them because they're doing what they believe God has led them to do. And if you don't have a better way to do it, then do it the best way you know how and praise God that at least they're doing something. But that's not for me. I can't formulate. I can't strategize. I can't. I had some people sit down and say, you just need to hammer out the vision. You just need to sit down with your Bible and make it happen. And I'm like, no. Like, that's a great idea for somebody else. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to wait until God tells me. I'm just going to listen and wait till God tells me. And so I've been reading this book, and I'm going to tie all these together. I know it's like, oh, look, squirrel, 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 squirrel. But we'll, we'll have a bundle of squirrels by the time it's all over. Um, I've been reading this book. It's a new book by Alan Hirsch. It just came out at the end of April called Metanoia. And a lot of you guys that have been in church for a length of time or have familiarity with Greek know what metanoia means. It's a Greek word for repentance. And so I've been reading this book about metanoia and throughout the book they're laboring that our understanding of metanoia has been very limited now think about this when someone talks to you about repentance you have various ideas you know used to be it was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and repentance meant put off sin right that's what repentance meant is like don't sin no more repent and then they broaden the understanding of repentance and it's like, okay, repentance means put off sin and go to God. So now it's not just a turning away from something, but now it's a turning to something. And then they broaden a little bo- bit more and said, well, metanoia actually means a change of mind. You know, you're changing your mind. You were thinking on these things. Now you're thinking on these things. And then they'd pull like Philippians 4, 8 in there into the conversation, which is a more accurate understanding of what metanoia means because meta means transformation. Noia means mind, so transformation of the mind. But in the book, they actually are laboring that metanoia, if you actually take and thoroughly study out the implications of the word, it doesn't just mean a mind shift or a paradigm shift. And when I say paradigm, in the realm of mind, I'm talking about like a worldview, the way that you see and process the world. That's your paradigm, your mental paradigm. They, they say it actually means more of like a paradigm explosion or like a breakthrough. And they said it's such a forceful experience that it could be equated with how you feel when you get converted, when you get saved. Like you you saw the world one way, and then when metanoia happens, you see the world in an entirely new way. It's like going walking into your hallway in the middle of the night and everything's black and you flip the lights on. Now you can see things in a whole new way that you couldn't see before. And they say that's kind of like what metanoia is. And they, they use this picture of an egg. I know, completely random. But they use this picture of an egg, and this guy says he's been a writer, writes stories since he was like eight or nine years old. And he says, every story that I've ever written starts off as like this egg inside my heart and my mind. And he says it has a little crack in it so that I know that there's something in it. But I like, I have the idea, and I can't really comprehend what it is. And no matter how I chew on it or process it, I know it's there, but I can't see it. And he said, so sometimes there'll be days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. And I think in one case he said it was like several years. But he had the egg for the idea, and he knew that the crack was there. And sometimes it'd get a little bit, bit bigger, so he'd have more of an idea of what it was. He said, but then one day it's like the egg drops and it explodes and yolk goes everywhere. And he says, and then he just sits down at his typewriter or his computer, and it says he's like trying to catch a flood in a teacup. And that's what I was waiting for for the vision of the church. I've been waiting for the, the, the egg to break. I've been waiting for the birthing moment, for the breakthrough moment, for the paradigm explosion. And literally, a lot of things factor into this story, but I'm, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to take up three or four hours. But yesterday, <laughs> I was literally walking through the kitchen Faith was at the sink doing awesome things because she always does. I don't even remember what she was doing. But I, was wa- I think she was repotting a plant. I don't know. <laughs> but I was walking past her, and it hit me. And then it was like word vomit. And I shared it with her, and I began to explain like all the different pieces to it. 
And I, then I just asked her a question. I was like, do you want to know how long I have had this and been meditating and chewing on it and been processing it? And she's like, she just gives me the look. And I was like, yeah, about five seconds. <laughs> but it was there the whole time. And it was just finally, it just let loose. And I'm going to share it with you before the conclusion of the sermon. And you may laugh when I tell you, because it's just four words. You may laugh. You may think that it's too simple. You may think that it's too trendy. You may think that it's cheesy. You may think that, you know, it sucks. I don't care. Because it's not what it is. It's what it represents. It's what it represents. And I began to realize that if we're going to talk about signs of a healthy church, and I said we'd get to Acts chapter 2, and I promise we will, but if we're going to talk about signs of a healthy church, the vision is kind of like the roof. Because everything that is in the church falls under the vision. You know, without a vision, the people perish. Without a vision, the people perish. Could you imagine if you had to live in your house with no roof on it? I mean, that'd make those hot summer July and August days suck real bad. <laughs> or those rainy days, you know, when, when Cleveland decides to do it, put on its own theatrical production of Noah and the Ark, you know, because <laughs> it does. Cleveland, when it rains, it rains. And I love it. But could you imagine how fun it would be, the bugs at night? I mean, it would just be a disaster living in your house without the roof on and that's kind of what it is to attend church or be a part of a church that doesn't have a vision. Because anything that wants can just get right inside. Anything that wants to can just come right inside. It doesn't matter. Whatever the weather is, whatever the climate is, whatever the temperature of the culture and the surroundings are, gets right in the church because they don't have a vision. And without a vision, people perish. The NIV translate it, without a revelation, the people perish. Or it doesn't use perish. I don't remember what it uses. But without an unfolding, meaning there has to be, for it to be a vision, there needs to be an unveiling. We don't need to just manufacture visions and strategies. That's great for Walmart and the Dollar General. The church needs to hear it from God. So are you ready? Are you, are you anxious? Are you eager? Are you going to make fun of me? Do we got, can we have a deal? Here, here it is, four words. Four words, and then I'm going to explain it, so you just be patient with me. Here's the vision. Hello, Cleveland. Meet Jesus. Hello, Cleveland. Meet Jesus. Because, listen to me, Cleveland, per capita, is the most religious city in the entire world. They know how to do church. They know how to do ministry. They know how to do conferences. We have the best preachers in the world come through Cleveland. We know how to do church in Cleveland, but a lot of people in Cleveland have never met Jesus. A lot of people in Cleveland have no idea who he is. They could tell me the meaning of how to pronounce his name in Hebrew. They can tell me what Christos means in the Greek. They could show me verses that talk about the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. And they can break things down and teach me the Bible. But they have no idea who Jesus is. And you know what the other indictment is? Let's flip it around. Our churches have no idea who Cleveland is. We have our little holes and our little sects, S-E-C-T-S. I know my accent makes that word a little hard to understand when I say it, but we have our little groups. And a lot of times we go to church and we congregate in our groups and we know the people in our church, but we don't know the cultural climate of the city that we live in. We don't know Cleveland. And so the vision is this, that we're going to make sure this church was built and founded on being benevolent, being good to Cleveland, knowing Cleveland intimately and doing everything possible to make sure that we were a blessing to Cleveland. And we're going to continue that heritage and build on that. But we're going to also make sure that Cleveland doesn't just know who we are, that we know who Cleveland is. And then we're going to introduce Jesus. See, I feel like in church, a lot of times what we do, I want you to carry this with me. Just follow this, this little anecdote. Go to a restaurant, walk in, 
We'll say the local goat because that's my favorite restaurant. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. We'll go to the local goat and we walk in and we talk to the waiter and they're like, they greet you at the door. Hey, how many are with you? Okay, let's find you a seat. And you go and you sit down. Hey, we'll be with you in just a minute. You know, everything will get rolling in just a minute. And then they bring you a menu and they hand you a menu. And they say, oh, it's got, it's got some descriptions on it. It's got some descriptions on it. And look, there's some, some of them have pretty pictures. I wish I had my King James that has the pictures in it. But some of them have pretty pictures. And it's like, oh, that looks really good. That um, farmhouse burger with the gluten-free bun, that, that looks really good. I like that picture. I like that picture. You know, the egg, the yolk running down. We've already been talking about an egg, so this just makes perfect sense. You know, that's what I, w- I would like. So you place your order. They write it down. That's, that's great. That's great. And then about 15, 20, no, you know what? Let's say about 45 minutes later, they bring you your check, and they say, hey, Thank you for coming. Um, here's, here's your bill, and we'll see you next time. But you never get your meal. You never get what you ordered. Oh, and next time you come, I'd really love it if you brought your own menu. We've got Pathway and we've got White Wing. You can buy one that's got nice goat skin leather, real supple, real soft. You just bring your own menu next time because we're no longer going to carry the expense of providing them for you if you don't have one so you bring your own you know what scan the qr code and you can download your own electronic menu and come and then you can you can follow along but we're never going to give you what you order or what you ask for nothing to sustain you or provide for you and you're going to walk away feeling just as hungry as you did when you walked in hello cleveland meet jesus don't don't just talk about him don't just know that you need him or place, want to place an order for him. Let's, let's start offering people Jesus. Not a service. Not a sermon. Not, not a description of what things could be or what things should be. Let's meet people and offer them Jesus. Offer them Jesus. Because if we're talking about a house... There's got to be a door. Come on, you Bible students. You already know. Jesus says, I am the door. You don't even get into the house or get into the conversation, but through the door. So, Acts chapter 2. I told you we would get here. Are we still doing good? Y'all still tracking with me? All right, Acts chapter 2. Listen, I could just read a segment of this chapter, but I am Pentecostal, and this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, so we're going to read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, y'all got your Bible reading in today. (laughs) Oh, Lord, help me. God, I just apologize in advance. You know, thank you. A merry heart does good like a medicine. We all going to be well. We all going to be well. (laughs) <laughs> that's right be all right oh lord i'm not gonna sing bob marley i'm not gonna sing bob marley <laughs> now don't worry about a thing because every little thing is gonna be all right yeah Woo! all right acts chapter two let's get serious Woo! all right when the day of pentecost came they were all together in one place And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. If we're talking about the church being a house, wouldn't it be great if we just had the Holy Spirit fill the whole house? Amen. Come on. Come on. All right. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So start right here. Some of them made fun of them because they had too much wine. Can I tell you right now that there are a lot of people in the world 
making fun of Christianity. Not just Pentecostals, just Christianity as a whole. They are making fun of Christians. Why do they get together? Why do they meet? Why do they sing songs to a God they can't see? Why do they talk about Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago? People are making fun of Christians. They're attacking us. Used to, it was just a a silent, off-to-the-side mockery, but it has periods of getting more and more heightened. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't think that persecution for Christianity is coming, you are seriously diluted and you're like an ostrich that has its head in the sand. It's here and it's coming in even greater measure. Watch what happens. I want you to pay close attention to Peter and to the response because this is, this is what I want us to key in on. I, I shared this with faith Brief, brief pause. I shared this with Faith when I was talking about what I felt like God was doing. If I wanted to go for a hike in the Cherokee National Forest and I had a compass and I had a map of all the trails for the Cherokee National Forest, that wouldn't do me any good right here. I would have to get in my car because I suck with directions. I'd have to put it in my GPS and have a road map take me to the Cherokee National Forest. This is our, com- our pre-roadmap, our GPS, to get to the church so that we can talk about signs of a healthy church. Watch what Peter does. He says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. He says, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, best phrase in all of Scripture, but God, raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing that what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Many other words he warned them and he pleaded them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 added to their number that day. Praise God. 42 through 47 will be the compass that we'll get into, you know, in the weeks coming. But the reason I, I brought this up is because I wanted to share with you guys a very, very important thing that the church has kind of just lost. That the church has kind of just lost. The church has created a system of how things should be done. The way that we set up our seats, 
the way that we orient our sanctuary, the way that we conduct our services is not new. It's not just been around for a few generations. It's actually quite old. It's quite old. And the church has had the same vehicle for communicating the gospel for a long time. I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with the vehicle. But what I am saying, what I am communicating, is Scripture doesn't tell us that we can't change the vehicle. Scripture tells us we can't change the gospel message. But sometimes we have to adjust the presentation and we have to adjust the vehicle. Fifty years ago, you couldn't share the gospel on TikTok or Instagram. But now, if you don't share the gospel on TikTok and Instagram, you're missing an entire generation of people. Fifty years ago, we didn't do uh, YouTube. Now you have to. Fifty years ago, it didn't matter if you had an internet presence or not. But now... If you don't have an internet presence, you're missing an entire generation of people. And people keep wondering why churches grow less and less and less and individually die and close down and sell their buildings to somebody that remodels it and turns it into a wedding venue. The reason is, is because they keep the same vehicle and they never want to change because of preference. But it's one of my personal values. I didn't come up with this. I stole it from somebody that probably stole it from somebody else. It is not about your preference. It is about His presence. And I will change every preference I have if it means communicating gospel with just one more person. Who cares what type of music we sing as long as it's not heretical and it gives honor and homage to the King of Kings? Who cares what the wall color is or what the carpet color is or whether we have chairs or pews? Who cares? If, if I need to take the chairs out and everybody sit on the floor on pillows to reach the next generation... We'll have chairs lined up on the side for people to sit in that can't sit in the floor. That <laughs> was just a joke. That was just a joke. I'm not, I don't actually plan on doing that. Thank God. But I'm just saying, like, if that's what it takes, are we more concerned with our preference or are we concerned with actually communicating the gospel to the next generation? But guess what? You can't know how to communicate the gospel with the next generation or how to reach the world unless you have a little bit of an understanding of where the world is at. I love Peter. I love the way that the Holy Spirit uses him to respond to this because you know what he says? He says, sirs, they're not drunk as you suppose because it's only nine in the morning. Don't you wish that that argument still had validity today? If somebody was wasted and I said, why are they drunk? It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. And somebody would look at me stone cold and say, what does that have to do with anything? If I said, why are they high as boat gas? It's only 7 a.m. Somebody would literally walk over to me and say, it's because they haven't stopped partying from last night. They're still in party mode. Like the argument doesn't have validity anymore. But it did then. And what Peter did Look, I don't think with that many people around, enough for 3,000 people to be baptized and saved, I don't think that Peter heard them say that. I think that it, someone said that to someone who said it to someone and the message somehow got back around to Peter that they were saying that. So he gained a cultural perception of what they were thinking and then addressed it. See, we have to gain an understanding of the culture around us. We have to know what the people are thinking so that we can then find common ground to meet them on. Peter had two levels of common ground. He met their argument about some level of distaste, saying they're not drunk. And then he met another common ground. These were God-fearers or God-seekers, so they were very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. And the people were thinking they're drunk. And there's no scriptural warrant for what's going on. So Peter, on that common ground, because he had a cultural perception, met their argument. No, they're not drunk. Here's why. And yes, there is a scriptural warrant for this. Let me show you. That was the common ground that Peter met. Cultural perception, knew what was going on and what the culture was thinking, found common ground to meet them on, and then contradiction. And inserted the gospel. And if you want to reach those outside, that's how you have to do it.
You have to perceive and understand what they're thinking and why they're thinking the way that they're thinking and why they feel the way that they feel. You have to understand what their animosity towards God and towards Christianity is. And you have to be willing to make some concessions. Listen, I talked to an uh, Islamic missionary for three and a half hours and debated with him. And he told me, finally, he got frustrated. He said, I can't accept Christianity because look at what Catholic Church and other Christian churches have done. And I said, great, I can't accept Islam because of what jihad and al-Qaeda and ISIS have done. Is that an accurate representation of what you believe? And he said, of course not. And I said, then stop holding me accountable for what fanatics have done in Jesus' name because it's not fair. You meet them where they're at, figure out why they feel the way that they feel, find the common ground, and then insert the contradiction. And that's what Peter does. And he inserts the contradiction in the common ground. The prophecy of Joel, which was giving scriptural warrant to the God-fearers of why they were doing what they were doing. And I love how the prophecy of Joel ends. I love how detail-oriented our God is. He threw that little phrase in there because he knew that one day Peter was going to quote this scripture and he was going to end it with, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter just flows right in. And uses another famous patriarch, David, to show that Jesus Christ was the Lord. See, when we present the gospel, we have to make sure that we aren't just, oh, God loves you just the way that you are. Don't change. Don't change. God doesn't want you to repent. He just wants you to believe and then throw fairy flowers in the wind. That's sick. That's sick. That's why we have people that are practicing homosexuals that just think that Christianity is just another thing they can add on. I've always talked to foreign missionaries who go to pagan countries or polytheistic countries, meaning they have multiple gods. It's real easy to get them to accept Jesus. The problem is, is getting them to remove the other gods and make it only Jesus. Because Jesus is not plus one. Jesus is only one. And as long as you have plus one, you don't have no one. Anyway. So when you present the gospel, you have to follow Peter's methodology here. Because not only does he show the scriptural foundation, but he shows them their sin. Makes it personal. You, with the help of wicked men, killed an innocent man. You condemned somebody that was blessed by God to death out of jealousy. You did it. And I'm not saying that we take this Bible and we pull it out and we just smack the pee out of people. I'm not saying that we do that. But what I am saying, I wish I could do it too. But but what I am saying is we cannot let people off the hook when the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction on their life. And we do that so often. Somebody is feeling rough and in a mess and beat down about their own sin and their own state. And we're like, it's okay, it's okay. And it's like, leave them alone. Maybe God, is His Spirit is convicting them and pushing them towards a moment of metanoia, of repentance, of paradigm explosion so that they can see the world as God sees it and surrender their life. And we just become enablers and enable them to live in their life of sin and slap a Jesus sticker on their bumper. No, no. Peter, when he presents the gospel, he shows them that they have to call in the name of the Lord to be saved, but he doesn't just say that and leave it there. He shows them why they need salvation by pointing out that they are sinners. Not just that sin exists, but they are guilty. They are guilty against God. And then he shows them that Jesus is the Lord that they should call on. And it's no wonder out of all this that they finally just break down and say, what do we do? They were cut to the heart because he he had a cultural perception and realized where they were at. He was able to find common ground with them. He was able to contradict them with the gospel message to show that they needed salvation because they were sinners and then to show them that Jesus was the the Lord that they needed to call upon. And they're like, okay, great. I got it. I got it. How do I call upon him? Is this just about saying, Lord, Lord, Lord? Like, like how how do I do this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Let your mindset be blown. Let your entire worldview be destroyed so that you can begin to see the world the way God sees it. 
and then be baptized, take a step towards, and they would have understood this. Baptism is a washing. It's an initiation into a life of discipleship. Repent. Let your mind be blown. Let your entire worldview be destroyed and then begin a new life following Jesus. That's what you have to do. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's both. And that is how you get to be in the house. Talking about the church being God's house, and we're going to go through all the rooms and the signs of the healthy church. You're talking about the church being God's house. Well, you have to know how to get there. And all roads point to Jesus. Listen, you can take any road you want to to get to my house. Any road you want. I don't care if you come down 81 and come through Bristol and Knoxville and then take every back road you can possibly take and do circles around and go to Nashville and then come. I don't care how you do it. But to get in my house, you still have to come through the door. (laughs) All roads lead to Jesus. All roads lead to Jesus. And the entirety of everything that Peter preaches, the first post-resurrection sermon on my wife would correct me and say, no, 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 no. The first post-resurrection sermon was preached by Mary when she said, he is risen. I'm, the first Pentecost sermon preached by, preached by Peter is entirely, entirely, entirely centered on Jesus. There are two types of, or two Greek words for how to measure time. There's the Greek word chronos, which is like just the succession of events, just the ordering of events. That's just the regular word for time. And then there's the word kairos. And that is talking about a crisis moment, like a breaking moment. Pentecost was a breaking moment. Something shifted, something changed. And I believe that everything that we have been experiencing has been leading up to us having a kairos moment in this church. And I believe with everything that I have that it started not just when we first got down here, although that was a Kairos moment, but I believe that it started not just in January when everybody charged the altar, not just last week when we started the series, but even as recently as last night when God told me the vision. I believe it's a Kairos moment. And I believe that we have big things coming in this church. And I know pastors stand up and say that all the time. But I believe that God is about to do something amazing. I believe he's about to do something amazing here. And I believe that we're going to be able to say, hello, Cleveland, we're here. And we don't want you to just know us. Because in our day of social media propagation, everybody we have websites that are all about our face. I mean, come on, Facebook, how arrogant can you get? Like, you all want to know about my life, what I had to eat last night. Like, I don't care what you had to eat last night. Like, TikTok, Twitter, like, it, it's all, like, everything. You want to know everything there is about me? No. Have you ever heard of privacy? Do not create an Instagram reel while you're sitting on the toilet. I don't want to see that. They do exist. In multitudes. <laughs> But churches do the same dang thing. Am I allowed to say dang from the pulpit? (laughs) But we do the same thing. We want everybody to know who we are. Look, here's our fancy sign. Here's our, our, our theme, our verse. Here's what services we're having. Here's what events we're doing. Here's who our famous speaker is. Like, everybody needs to know us, needs to know us, needs to know us. And that's great. I have no problem with that. But how about for once we just say, hey, we want to know you. So hello, Cleveland. We want to know you. What do you need? How can we be there? How can we show the tangible love of Jesus to you, Cleveland? A lot of times I had a meeting. I haven't done it here yet, but I plan to. But I had a meeting with a mayor of a city where we planted a church before. 
And I asked the mayor, I said, what do, what do you need? And they were literally blown away. And they said, churches are all the time trying to do all of these things and outreaches and events to help the city. She said, I've never, ever, she, yes, the mayor was a female. She said, I've never, ever had a single pastor come to me and ask me, what do I need? And she said, because all of these other people, this isn't a prideful thing. God told me to do it, so he gets all the glory. But all these other churches are doing all these things that we don't need. She said, you want to know what we honestly need? We need volunteers. She said, we get snow, and we have a lot of elderly people that call the city because they need help shoveling their driveways. Can you make that happen? You know, we need people to occasionally have their yard mowed because apparently in Pennsylvania, if your yard gets above 11 inches, you can be fined and taken to jail. I, was, I thought it was just everybody was weird about their yard. No, they're legally required to have their yard a certain way. Still blown away by that one. But anyway, so no one had ever just asked the city what they needed. And I, I just think about that, and I'm like, why, why are we so out of tune that we think that we have all the answers? So I'm making it my personal mission I'm going to get to know Cleveland because that's where God has put us. And you know what? Not only am I going to get to know Cleveland, and as a byproduct of that, you can't really get to know somebody without them getting to know you too. So they'll get to know us by us getting to know them. That's, that's, that's a byproduct. That's, that's an automatic gain. But in that and getting to know them, I'm going to find every way possible to introduce them to Jesus. Not church, not religion, not Christendom, not my services or my theology or my interpretation of certain things. The person, Jesus, and I'm going to let him sort everything else out. Amen? Because he says, guess what? Your job is to catch them. I'll sort them out later. Amen? That sounds like a good place to stop. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that you would empower this church enlighten this church and motivate this church to go out and to become a force in this city. Lord, let us become matchmakers. Let us become matchmakers and let's get every single person in Cleveland to hear the gospel. That's not an overwhelming or unbelievable, an undoable task. Lord, I pray that in the next year, two years, I pray that every single person in Cleveland will have heard the gospel at least once. And every single person in Bradley County. And then we'll go for every person in East Tennessee. And then we'll go for the whole Southeast. Lord, it is an indictment that we have so many churches and so many ministers and so many Christians and there's still people out there that can't tell me what the gospel is or who Jesus is. Lord, use us as a catalyst or just as a cog in the wheel to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.